Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not pour open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the, rebuke the devourer for you so that, I, that it will not destroy the fruits of your, so, of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. Let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's Word. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the television game show, Let's Make a Deal. The, the contestants usually dress up in some kind of funny costume and the host comes down and, you know, let's make a deal. You, you give me something that probably doesn't have any value and, 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 and you take uh, in exchange something on the, the stage in front of you. So let's, let's make a deal this morning. Let's you and I make a deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to give you $1 million. But the deal is, before you leave, you have to give back to me $100,000. Here's my deal. I'm going to give you $1 million. And before you get to your car, before you leave the building, of your $1 million, you have to give $100,000 back. Who, who's ready for that deal? Right? I'm ready for that deal. I mean, what a deal. Who wouldn't take that deal? I mean, you're going to give me $1 million and just before I get out, I'm going to give you $100,000 back and I'm going to get $900,000. Of course, that's, that's, incred that's an incredible deal. And we might say that's the kind of deal God had made with His people. God had made this deal with His people that He was going to provide everything for them, like a million dollars. And after he provided everything for them, all he was saying is because I want you to remember that everything came from my hand. And in order for you to remember and not forget, I want you to just give me back a portion, a, a tithe, a 10 percent back. You can take your 90 percent and I want you to use it responsibly, but that's going to be underneath your control. But this is a, just a reminder to say this is what God, it's really all come from God. And I need to make sure I remember that. I need to make sure I don't forget. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says this to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, a land, and now notice, a land flourishing with cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, 
wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When you eat and you're satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. See, I'm going to I'm going to bring you into a place and all of these things I've put together just for you. And what I'm afraid of is when you sit around the table and you're eat and you're satisfied, you'll say, wow, we did it. I want to I want to make sure you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who who brought you out of the land of slavery. God seemed to understand in advance that, that once the people moved into the promised land, it would be easy to forget that God actually was the one who supplied everything. And, and one primary way for God to help the people not forget is that they would give a portion back, not because God needed it. I mean, God doesn't need a portion back. He already owns everything. You can't give something to somebody who owns it already. And so he's just saying, you need it. You need to be appropriately generous, because if you're not appropriately generous, then you're going to forget where everything comes from. And instead of acting like stewards, you're going to act like owners. I got this. I did this. I got this education. I got this house. I purchased this. And you're going to you're going to live with a clenched fist. And, and you didn't provide any of those things. God provided all those things for you. And I want you to live with an open, I want you to live with a generosity, uh, a heart of generosity. So maybe like Shane was saying, you have one talent, maybe you have two, maybe you have five. Regardless of what you have, it has come from the Lord. And proportionally, I want, to, I want you to take 10% of that and put it aside for me. And that's not what the people were doing in Malachi chapter 3. You see that in verse 8. God comes to this congregation and says, you've, you've, you're a thief. And you're stealing from me. And like a, a spoiled teenager, the the... the that rebukes or wants to stiff-arm the disciplining parent. The congregation, as we've gotten used to, hey, I don't think so. God, bad analysis. I mean, how are we robbing you? We're not, that's not possible. We couldn't possibly rob from you. And so God says, well, you, you are, and you're robbing me in your tithes and your offerings. See, see I, I made a deal with you. I provided a land you didn't create. I, I put you in cities you didn't build. I, I dug wells. I provided good things. And yet, despite all of what I've done, you decided to act like owners and not stewards. You got the million dollars and you were happy about it. But by the, by the time you hit the door, you only had $10 to spare. Oh, I was going to give something back. It's just, and that's too much. I've already calculated in my mind how I'm going to use it and... Sorry, God, this is all I got left over. That's what the people were were acting like. They were acting like they were owners, even though they were stewards. I mentioned this last week, and a writer, a biographer, had written something recently on uh, a gentleman. And in this interview with the biographer, the, the interviewer asked, well, how did you learn so much about this particular person you wrote about? Where did you learn the most about the man? And his answer is, I learned the most about this man by examining the stubs of his checkbook. 
See, I went through the stubs of his checkbook and I could tell where his priorities were. I could tell what he really loved, what he really treasured. And so God has come, into, has come to this particular congregation through Malachi and he's looked through the stubs of their checkbook and he sees that this congregation has failed to rearrange their lives around him. Remember, remember last week when we talked about the treasure and the pearl? Once you've found the treasure, once you've found the pearl, then you rearrange your whole life around this one great treasure. And he comes to the congregation and he says, well, I see you here on Sunday mornings, but I know that in your heart you haven't rearranged your life around me. You've really rearranged your life around. Well, you haven't rearranged your life actually at all. Your life started around yourself and you just got me as an attachment. Just like something you stuck on your belt that you said, well, you, you know, occasionally God comes in handy. So you, you didn't really treat him like a treasure. You didn't treat him like a pearl of great price. You just treated him like an attachment. And probably the saddest verse in this entire book is in this little passage that I read, verse 7. God looks at this, this particular group and says, return to me and I will return to you. And the reason I find it so sad is because the people in the church were completely unaware that any distance or drift had happened. Return. I mean, they say return. Meaning, I mean, we haven't moved. You see, they're completely unaware. They come, they sing, they lift up their voices. They do the fellowship thing. I mean, they look like they're doing it and they think they're doing it. And God says, but I'm nowhere near. We're, we're nowhere near each other because your heart has been captured by the material things of the world. Your heart has been captured by good gifts that I gave you. And instead of them just being good gifts, you turn them into gods. And you can't live without them. And now when you come, you don't realize that I'm not even there anymore. You see it. How shall we return, they ask. They're, they're completely unaware there had been any movement or distance between themselves and God. Maybe the habit of keeping God's money for themselves. Maybe the excuses of why I couldn't possibly give 10%. I mean, you should see how I live my life. That would be too much. Maybe their attitude of ownership. Maybe these things had become so ingrained, they just didn't see him anymore. They just couldn't see how they were living. And so they're, they're completely misguided in where they are in their relationship with God. God, they think they're in tight with God. They're in the congregation. They're, they are the people of God. They're calling themselves God's people. And God says, not only am I not near, look at verse 9. You're, you're under a curse. <laughs> you, you thought you were near, and in reality, you're under a curse. Your heart has been so captured by the things of the world, you have really no idea where you are. So he sends Malachi to this congregation to say, come back. Don't be captured by those things. Don't be enslaved by those things. Get out from underneath this curse, and I'll come back. I will return, God says. And so this morning, I want to talk briefly about tithing and our application of this Old Testament command to us as New Testament believers. But before I do that, I want you to hear me say loud and clear, I'm, I'm not asking for your money. 
That's something that God does with you. I'm just trying to go through this text and allow the text to speak. So I'm not here asking for your money, but I am here pleading. I am pleading with you as your friend. I'm pleading with you as your pastor to to live free. That's what I'm really pleading for, is that you would live free, that you would live out from underneath the curse that money often can be associated with. That you wouldn't live enslaved, but you would live as a free man or a free woman. You would be free from being possessed by your possessions. I don't know all the details, and they're really not that important, but my parents made some poor financial decisions. And I guess they were particularly around when I was middle school, high school. And basically, I think they bought things they couldn't afford. And then in order to live, they had to borrow money. I don't know if you're familiar with this pattern. They bought things that they originally just couldn't afford. Some things went sour in the economy. Some things went sour at work. And now I got more money going out than coming in. And there's somebody named MasterCard who will give me some money. And when they give me money, they become my they become my master. And I become enslaved because of possessions, because of money. The constant stress that that created in my family took a huge toll. And it, and it sucked up joy and freedom like a great vacuum. So I hear, here I was in this house that otherwise had some good components, because, but because of this umbrella effect of, of this debt, of this poor use of money, this poor stewardship, a, 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 a huge vacuum came in and just sucked life out of our family, and it sucked life out of my parents and their marriage. So my mom worked a full-time job and then came home and worked mostly a full-time job when she was at home as a tax accountant in order to get out from underneath this slavery. And I remember one day she, she said, Paul, I'm so tired. And naively, as you would say, if you were in eighth or ninth grade, Mom, why don't you just go to bed early? Which she should have shot me for, but I never forget her response. She said, I'm the kind of tired sleep doesn't touch. Now, when I was 14, I didn't understand that, but 50, I understand that. A couple years later, early May, just before I graduated from college, she called me to say she had breast cancer. And, of course, when your parent calls you, you just shock. You know, that's kind of your first reaction. You don't know what to say. What do you say? So after sort of got some composure, she got some composure. We're on the phone together. And so I said, you know, when did you discover it? And again, never forget her response. Well, some months ago, I felt the lump. But because it was the beginning of tax season, I waited to go see the doctor. You mean some months ago you found this out? But because of tax season? I mean, of course, I didn't say this on the phone. 
But, but I was just livid that, that you've gotten so enslaved that four or five months had to go by because you had to get through tax season to get that paycheck because you're, you're enslaved. You're, you're living underneath this curse and you can't get away from it. All because of money. Proverbs 22, borrowers are slaves. Slaves aren't free. Slaves neglect themselves in order to serve a cruel master. And money itself is not a curse. I want you to hear me say that. It's not a curse. But if it becomes your master, it's a cruel master. It can be a great tool, but it can be a cruel master. If you make it the center of your universe, then it sucks the life out of you like it would a slave. Now, now I'm not saying my mother got cancer because of money. I'm not saying my mother got cancer because she was cursed by God. I'm not saying those things. What I am saying is she became enslaved, and once she became enslaved, her thinking got twisted and her priorities got turned upside down. And so I'm pleading with you. I just want you to hear me say, I am pleading with you to live free. You only have one life. This is it. Why would you for 20 or 40 or 60 years live as a slave? Why would you not live in a trailer than live in a house where you're enslaved? Why, why would you not ride a bike or walk to have a car that's really a master? Why, why would you do that? Please, don't be enslaved by these things. They are not worth it. They are not worth it. So I'm, I'm not asking for your money. This is not a pitch for money. This is a pitch for your soul. To be captured by God. To be captured by this one great treasure. And when you're captured, when you're enslaved to this one great treasure, you're free of everything else. And that's where I want you to live. Dave Ramsey, as some of you are taking the Financial Peace University, and you say, I think Paul's becoming Dave Ramsey here in this sermon. He always quotes this verse about debt, Proverbs 6. My son, if you guarantee a loan for your neighbor or pledge yourself for a stranger with a handshake, if you're trapped by the words of your mouth, caught by your own promise. In other words, if you've made a deal with somebody financially where you're on the hook for it in some way, he says this, free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. And he shows this great clip. You guys know it, do you not? Where it's the National Geographic, you know, clip where the little gazelles out there, you know. Yeah, everything's fine. And then they go to the cheetah. I don't, I don't make a good cheetah, but you know what I'm saying. Don't picture me. Maybe you should picture me as a cheetah. But cheetah's in the high grass, sneaking up on the gazelle, right? And then suddenly, you know, the cheetah jumps in and the gazelle's like, and what's the gazelle doing? The cheetah is running for a meal. The gazelle is running for his life. And that's what the proverb is saying. This is what this wise man is saying. If you're underneath that slavery, run for your lives. Do everything you can to get out of it as quickly as you can. Because if it's not, if it captures you, you'll be enslaved the rest of your life. 
It'll crush you. And you might not get cancer. You might have to live with it for 80 years. And you'll never be really free. And so God understands that. In His mercy, He says, I know Paul Phillips' heart. I know your heart. You look at something and say, i got to have that. And then it has me. I've got to possess this and then it, it can quickly possess me. And so many times, well, well oh, I've got to have this kind of house and I've got to have this kind of car because you should see my old car. I've got to have this kind of education or my kids have to have this kind of education. And you live with these excuses that enslave you for the rest of your life. On a poor, faulty decision-making process. The, the biblical priority for the use of money is to give, to save, to live. To give, to save, to live. But sadly, the pattern is mostly reversed. The people live. And then hey, I've got to save something. And if I have the $10 at the end, I can give. The statistics move around a bit, but mostly the average Christian gives 2%. And only 5% of Christians give 10%. Well, let's look briefly at the text here this morning. First, let's look at verse 9 and verse 10. God's informing the congregation that they're robbing him by not bringing what he calls the full tithe into the storehouse or into the temple. And in the Bible, the first time we encounter this word or this idea of tithe, it was an ancient custom. So if you go back to Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has just fought this battle. He gets a bunch of spoils from war, and he comes and he meets this guy who's a priest called Melchizedek. And what, for whatever reason, we don't have enough time to talk about that, he gives 10% of what he's gotten to this priest. We see it again in Genesis chapter 28. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he's had this dream. He's encountered the Lord in some unusual place, and when he wakes up, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. Then Jacob made a vow saying, all that you give me, see, all that you give me, I'm going to give you back a tenth. So it's a, an ancient custom that by the time you reach, reach Moses in Leviticus chapter 27, the custom becomes compulsory. It's not a custom anymore. It's a law. Part of the Mosaic law, Leviticus 27:30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy. It's separate to the Lord. And so underneath this Old Testament law, the tithe was used primarily for two things. There was this group of people called the Levites. The Levites were the folks that took care of the temple. Or the tabernacle. They were the ones that were in charge of that. They didn't have any land. Their, their portion was the Lord, so to speak. And so all the other 12 tribes were making money off the land. And they would give money to the temple or this one tribe that didn't have any land, the Levites. And the Levites would take care of the temple. 
So that money coming from the people helped support the Levites so that they could do the work of the Lord in the temple and they wouldn't have to also be farmers. That was the idea. The other thing is once the, 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 the food or the money got brought in, then the, the Levites would distribute that to the poor. So part of the tithe went for the temple and then part of it went to the poor. That's why it says the storehouse. They're bringing mostly food and grain in. And so it gets stored. And when there was some problem, widows or orphans or otherwise, the poor could be supplied by that. So that's, that's the typical tithe. In Proverbs 3, 9 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. So, so the idea of this tithe is a, a crop comes in and the first 10%, the first fruits, the, the first part of my paycheck in our world, it goes to God because I just need to, right off the bat, I need to say, God, I know you gave me this whole paycheck and I want to make sure I don't forget you, so I'm going to give you this 10% back. And then we have what are called offerings. These are gifts above the 10%. Usually, Exodus 25, given under the construction of the temple. But it usually means there's some particular issue that we need to address, and that could be a building or it could be some other reason, and you would give an offering. You'd always be giving your tithe, but you would also give an offering. So if you're unfamiliar with the phrases that if you get into sort of the church world, That you hear tithes and offerings are first fruits. If you don't know that, you don't really know what that context is. So that's the context. You're you're bringing in the tithe, which literally means a tenth. It's the first part of what you make. It's your first fruits. And then there'll be special occasions that money will be needed, and that's called an offering. And then notice in verse 10, God does something very, very unusual. He's charged the people with robbing, and he moves from the charge to a challenge. I'm charging you of robbery, but now I'm just challenging you. And here's my challenge. I dare you to bring your 10% in. Because if you bring your 10% in, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven, and so much blessing is going to pour out that you're going to look back at me and say, I can't take any more. My hands are full. My cup Runneth over. I just can't take any more, Lord. My bank account called and said, Paul, too much money. Can't put any more in here. He's challenging the people to say, and you know, it's not a challenge for God, is it? I mean, that's the neat thing about the text is you realize, I don't think this is really a test for God. It sort of sounds like a test for God, but it's no problem for God to open up the storehouse. If Jesus can take a few loaves and a few fish and say a prayer and feed either five or 15,000 people, it's not a problem for God. It's not a real test for God. It's a real test for the people. Would they trust God? Would they be able to say, God, I know you gave gave me the million. I know I have my ideas of how I'm going to spend the million, but... I'm going to trust and give you that 100,000. And that's what God is asking them to do, to put them to the test. Now, now, most of the time when I get into a discussion about tithing, especially from the Old Testament, the question that's asked is, as a New Testament believer, do we still live under 
the Old Testament law. I mean, we see that it was a custom, but the custom, it came compulsory. You had to do it. That was what you're supposed to do. But now we're in the New Testament, and are we taking that out of the Old Testament and applying it to ourselves, or are we not? That's the question. And my answer is no, we don't live underneath the law, but we should live according to the pattern. We don't live underneath the law, but we should live according to the pattern. Now, when I wrote that down at my computer, I kind of sat back and thought, that reminds me of when I was a teenager. When my parents would say, Paul, we're trying to give you a little bit more freedom. And I would come to them and say, can I go do this or should I do that? And they would say something like this. Well, we're trying to give you some freedom, so you decide. But I think you should... So it sort of sounds like that, does it not? I mean, you're free to do whatever you, do, you should do, but there's a, pat, there's a pattern you should take close, pay close attention to. So let me explain how I got to that statement. First, uh, we don't specifically know why Abraham and Jacob gave 10%. There's nowhere a requirement. It just says that they did. So we know it was at least some kind of custom or some kind of practice. And then we know it becomes a law with Moses and then all the way into the New Testament. And then in the New Testament, Paul writes this to the church at Rome. My brothers, this is Romans 7. My brothers, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who raised, was raised from the dead. Now by dying to once bound us, this is the law, we have been raised from the law so that we serve in a new way the way of the Spirit. We do no longer serve in the way of the old written code. Romans 7, 4. Galatians 2.20. Paul writing to these churches in an area called Galatia. I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I'm concluding we're set free from the law and released from this written code. But I don't believe we're set adrift to now just do whatever we want. I think we're released from this Old Testament law and now we're attached to Christ his spirit is now working in me. I, I no longer live this old way. I, knew, I live in this new way. So I, I'm not set adrift. I found this great treasure. I, I found this pearl of great price. So in joy, I'm willing to give up everything for this one thing. Second, nowhere in the New Testament writings to the early church do you find a command to give 10%. Instead, you find phrases like this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul comes to this church that he just planted. He's talking about giving. Brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the church plants in, the northern, in northern Greece. He's come from the north. He's coming down to the south. And he says, I'm writing you about grace that's been given to these churches up here in the north. The area is called Macedonia. Out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy with their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So they have poverty, but they have this overwhelming joy, and these things clash together in rich generosity. I testify they gave as much as they were able, and then even beyond their ability. 
Notice what he says. Entirely on their own. See, they had such joy in knowing who Christ was that they didn't need the law. The joy propelled them into giving even beyond what was, was even their ability. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Then he goes on. I'm not commanding you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Remember this. Remember this principle. This, this generally acts as a principle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also Reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So you get the flavor, don't you? You get this this New Testament flavor. I'm not giving 10% based on the law. I'm free of that. Thank the Lord I'm free of the law. But I see this practice, and now I'm not looking at the law to determine my giving. What am I looking at to determine my giving? (laughs) Of course. Jesus who came, who had the glory of God, and, and somehow he set that aside to become a servant and die for my behalf. This is what the measure of my giving is measured up against, not the law. And so I think it's assumed... By the New Testament writers, if you, have the, if you have in mind the cross of Christ in your giving, 10% is going to be a platform in which you start. Not a rule to be followed and not something to be forgotten. If I gave you a million dollars, that's my opening illustration, which I hate to say, I'm not going to do that today. The reason I chose that is because if you started working when you're 25 years old, that's when you got your first full-time job, and you made $25,000 a year. And you worked that job, never got a raise, and just made $25,000 a year every year for 40 years, how much would God have supplied for you? $1 million. So it's my guess in this congregation, many of you are going to have multi-million dollars to navigate. My question is, before you leave, what are you leaving behind? Malachi, our visiting preacher, is asking you, are you robbing God? God? 